0: couple of weeks ago we discussed or were discussing the power of being inclusive of other people and uh, we were talking about how the trajectory of the gospel was always to bring people together we were showing you how sin when it enters into the human race it started to fragment us and that even though God created us to need each other and to be with each other All of a sudden, when sin sort of is the worm that crawls its way into the human condition, that once that happens, we begin to hide and point our fingers and assign blame and try to bring shame on others in a cover-up of ourselves. But that how, even though that was the trajectory, the exclusiveness and pushing back and hiding was the trajectory or the fruit of sin, that somehow the gospel has always been to reverse that to start bringing people back together. Paul said that in Christ, all people would be one, that whether you're Jew or Greek or male or female or whatever, doesn't matter, social economic differences, that somehow we would begin to move toward one another. Jesus always demonstrated that. He loved people, particularly those that were on the edge of society that others had written off, that others didn't want anything to do with, uh, whether it was the poor or it was those that were pegged as sinners that they thought if I ever got near them that somehow their sin would get on me, and so people stayed away from them, or those who were tagged or labeled as unclean. What we see in the life of Jesus is that on some level, every person was welcomed and into his presence, no matter how he or she acted or how he or she believed, that somehow Jesus on a basic level welcomed all humanity. Early in the book of Acts, we see Peter in the church. He had this reluctance to connect with pagans. All Jews did. They thought they were unclean and didn't want to be with them. And God was calling Peter to go fraternize with this uh, pagan guy and share the gospel with him. And he said, whoa, why would we do that? And um, God actually says to him in a vision, do not call uh, them unclean. <laughs> see, because in his mind, they were unclean. And so Peter rushed to embrace the person that was it was unthinkable uh, to embrace from a Jewish mentality. This this inclusion idea is really extraordinary in historical thought, in the ways that nations functioned, in the ways Christianity was emerging. It was very, it was very extraordinary. Actually, it was scandalous because it was so open. The the reason it's scandalous is because people, even today, I think this is true. We, we tend to read when someone is being kind or generous or accepting of a person who's thinking wrong or acting wrong we tend to think that that our acceptance of them is an acceptance of their wrong of their wrong action or our our welcoming them as an acceptance of the way that they're thinking and so there's something in us that wants to make sure we don't compromise the truth that that we make sure that people know well you know I don't agree with them, so I have to be a little bit rigid or a little bit standoffish or I don't want to touch them or some way I need to communicate in the way I talk to them, That the sharpness of my articulation. Everybody needs to know I don't agree with that filthy person, right, kind of thing. But when we read Jesus, it seems like he's completely reckless with this. And he's seen with sinners. He lets the harlot come to him and wash his feet with her tears and dry it with his hair. And the, everybody's going, what's going on? How does he know her, right, kind of thing. And uh, uh, and then we see Jesus coming to that guy, Zacchaeus, who is a traitor to Israel, and everybody sort of hates him in his little town. And Zacchaeus, he's up in a tree, and Jesus comes by, and he calls Zacchaeus down and honors him by saying, I'm, I want to go and spend time with you. And the scripture says that the whole town when they saw him do this when they saw jesus do this the whole town grumbled (laughs) i've had a few people in a congregation grumble but not the whole you know he he made them mad and they would say about him if he were really a prophet he wouldn't be with that person if he were really prophet a prophet he would know you can't let that person be with you you can't let that person touch you this is the impulse of exclusiveness that 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 pervades the world and really has its root in sin. But the reality was we saw that Jesus hanging with Zacchaeus and Jesus opening his life up to these people that were less than worthy actually was the way that change and transformation came into their lives. We see later in Christian theology that Paul claims that it's the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. It's not kindness that makes them feel like they can stay the way they are. It's precisely the kindness that enables them to be able to be transformed. And we also see in Christian thought that Jesus said it was those Pharisees, the one that always had to say, well, look what you're doing. Look what you're thinking. That's not right. That that impulse to immediately point out what a person does, irrespective of why they're doing it. If that's the first thing you see, that impulse to do that actually makes your life a torment to people. <laughs> Praise the Lord. <laughs> we also looked at the story where Jesus is presented with this woman caught in adultery and the word of God says to stone her. And we see Jesus looking at her and not arguing with the scripture, but basically brilliantly causing calling the accusers i mean they were standing there with stones in hand wanting to kill this sinner this sinner deserves to die see there's something in all of us that wants to stone what we've identified especially if it's something we don't struggle with we just want to throw it just a little harder right but jesus said Let him, listen, it's great. Let him who's without sin, in other words, let him who's without sin cast the first stone. In other words, that sinner that you're trying to throw the stone at, recognize that she is a mirror. Because that sinner is you. Because you sin. So let him without sin cast the first stone. It says, all of them dropped their stones and walked away. See, what Jesus was calling them to understand is that on some level, You and this woman are the same. He always calls us to identify with people we encounter. It's called incarnation. It's us stepping into their shoes, us realizing that we could be them easily and that on some level we are them so that it engenders something else in our soul, something that that basically, that's why Jesus said to them in eight and seven when they kept Questioning him, He straightened up, if you, without sin, let him cast the first stone. But this idea of inclusion didn't end there. He didn't just include this woman. The scripture says that he challenged her because we don't just embrace those who are in sin. We also challenge them to leave their life of sin. Uh, that's what we want to focus on this weekend. We want to talk about For this idea of inclusion to be effective, there must be an element of exclusion. It's not exclusion of the person. It's exclusion of the person's actions or beliefs that are offensive. And this sounds a little bit paradoxical, but it's true. Jesus continues his conversation with the woman after everyone had left. It said, Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no, everybody's gone. And then Jesus said to her, then neither do I condemn you. And then he said, go now and leave your life of sin. Go and sin no more, is what he's saying. Go and sin no more. Notice he didn't say, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin some more. See, our inclusiveness of people is not an inclusiveness of sin. Whenever Jesus encountered sin in other people, he always embraced the person while confronting their sin. And this is the impulse of exclusion. Exclusion is about taking a stand for what is right. But it can't be done in a Christian way if we are not first radically inclusive of the person irrespective of what they're doing, just the way that they are, inclusive of the person first before there's any evidence they even want to change. But once we embrace them and once we hold them, it's like the physician embracing the sick. The reason the physician embraces the sick is to bring health. But the physician must first encounter and touch and listen and hear and be moved by the the, the sick person before the physician knows what to do with the sick person. But we cannot just throw words at people and demanding people to not be sick and stay away from them because we're afraid their sickness will get on us. That's not what the church is supposed to do. There has to be this inclusiveness first. And so this inclusive, exclusive tension is at the heart of the role of ministry for the church of Jesus Christ. And it's our call, really, for calling people into holiness. We embrace them, we love them, but our call is to bring them to a place of holiness. <laughs> holiness really means to be different, to be exclusively different. In 1 uh, Peter chapter 1, it says, but just as the one who called you is holy, so be holy in everything that you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Again, to be holy just simply means to be different. We're supposed to be different, different in how we live, different in what we believe about life, We're to be, uh, the church is actually called, the word for church in the Greek is ekklesia. It it means that we are the set apart ones, that we're the separated ones. Uh, Now, again, this is not separation from people. It's separation in our thoughts and in our behavior while we're in the midst of people. As we're including them and loving them, we're different, we're separated. We're not separate in the sense that we don't want any of those filthy people near us. We'd have to be out of the world then, right? But we're supposed to be in it. And this separation, this exclusivity is the key to us being a voice for God in the world. There's a great text in Revelations 3 that I used to hear preach when I was a kid. And, I, and I've heard it preach in this very odd context In a very odd way This is Jesus saying I know your deeds That you were neither cold nor hot Some of you have heard this when you were kids too I wish that you were either one or the other you were either cold or hot So because you are lukewarm Neither cold, neither hot nor cold I will spit you out of my mouth And one of those preachers used to say that They actually did spit <laughs> But what they were basically saying from this text is Jesus would rather have you hate him Or love him. Either be cold against him or hot for him. But because some of you are lukewarm. (laughs) He'll have to spit you out of his mouth. And we don't think, oh God, am I lukewarm? (laughs) (laughs) But, But one day it dawned on me. That what I think Jesus is talking about is not so much that he wants you to hate him or love him. I think what he was saying was, in the world, you have to be hot on some things. And cold on some things compared to what the world is. Compared to the culture you're in. That, that, that if you're not careful, you'll not be different enough to be able to be a voice. But instead, you'll be lukewarm. In other words, lukewarm. If I take a cup of hot water and a cup of cold water, and I leave it in this room for a very long time, what will happen to it? The hot water will become the temperature Of the room, and the cold water will stop being as cold and become the temperature of the room. And what do we call water that's the temperature of the room? Lukewarm. Hmm? So what I think Jesus is saying is if you want to be my voice piece, you've got to be hot on some things that others are not hot on, and you've got to be cold on some things that others are not cold on. But it's because of your difference that you become my voice. But if you come into the world and you want to be the same, if you want to be accepted by everybody, if you want to just fit in everywhere, you'll be lukewarm. I'll have to spit you out of my mouth. That doesn't mean you're going to hell. It means you won't be able to be a voice for God. There's an impulse in all of us who are followers of Christ that we want to be a voice for God. We want our lives to matter. But you won't matter if you don't let God make you different and holy which means, and sometimes you have to say, no, I, I'm really against that. Not because you're mean, not because you're hateful, but because you're righteous and holy, and you're taking God at his word. And that there's some things you're cold about. Not because you're trying to be exclusive of persons. You say, well, I, I want to be with you. I, I accept you, but I can't go there. I, I, think I This is what I think God is saying, and I can't compromise that. We are called to be exclusively different if we're to be a voice for God in the world, which means we have to have an appropriate orthodoxy, you know, which simply means the right believing. We have to believe rightly about things. We have to believe rightly about the power of money. We have to believe rightly about the opposite sex. We have to believe rightly about life. We, and Not only orthodoxy, but our orthopraxy, which is our practice of life, which means that we're to be how we are single, how we are married, How we work, how we react to rejection or applause or promotion, how we react to failure or success, how all of these hows are often very different than the way people would normally do it. But that's our calling. Successful discipleship demands that we both include people on some basic level, always, but then we also bring in this aspect of exclusion. Where we're telling them that, listen, you need to change. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, we need to exclude this. You need to, neither do we condemn you, we welcome you. But go and sin no more, right? Now, those who are mature in the church must learn how to push past the grief of seeing other people in sin. Because if you're mature, it will grieve you when you see wrong attitudes or wrong actions. And then, but even in spite of your grief, you need to embrace the person with radical love and inclusiveness. And then finally, at the right moment, and sometimes that takes a while, we need to confront the people that God has brought in our lives with the claims of Christ, which is the call to holiness. So there's this both inclusion and then this gesture toward exclusion. That needs to be present. If we just simply embrace people when, and, and confront them uh, you know, too early, we'll come across like a Pharisee. Because we're not hearing their heart. We don't know them. They don't feel loved. They don't feel safe. We, we just grab them to point at them. That's what the Pharisees did. On the other hand, if you wait too long and you think, I just want to love them, I want to include everyone, I just want everybody to know Jesus loves them and I love them and grace is wonderful. If you're not careful, you'll not call people to surrender to the Lordship of Christ and you'll draw them right into a life of inappropriateness or just never really affecting anyone in their world. Now, this is a bit of oversimplification, but there's at least five kind of people in the church that they're just hanging around the church. One group are the genuine outsiders who are interacting with us. These are unbelieving folks. These are folks that haven't necessarily crossed the threshold of faith. They haven't really surrendered to the lordship of Christ. The most important gesture to them is inclusiveness. I don't care what they look like, how they dress. I don't care what they're, I mean, it doesn't matter who they are. That on some level, if somebody walks in here and we have even the slightest suspicion they've never addressed the claims of Christ, we should embrace them and love them and welcome them and not try to quickly correct anything we see. Just love them. Include them. Here's another group. These are the disciples who are not very good at discipleship. They're just maybe newcomers to the faith, but they're trying. And the instruction to them, the most important thing to them really might surprise you is exclusion. In other words, we, we, we welcome them, we include them, but we're saying, okay, listen, you need to start addressing this attitude. You, get, you keep getting angry over stuff or hurt over stuff you shouldn't be getting hurt over. And, and we need to encourage them to realize that discipleship is not a solo job, that we really need to do this together. And I remember when I was young in the faith, I loved being discipled. I loved when my pastor or my friends would say, Ed, you're just being this way or stop doing this. I go, oh, Really? And 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 a wise man loves reproof, right? So so when we have a person that says, "I want to be a disciple," that's an open door for us to say, "Okay, so let's talk about it." It's going to you know the scripture doesn't just comfort us; it makes us miserable first. It's true. And when you want to be a follower of Jesus, get ready, get ready, get ready, because God's gonna be all up in your grill. Then the third group are the disciples that are not very good at it, and they're kind of lukewarm. In other words, they're not trying. They're casual. With these kind of people, I mean, they get touchy if you try to talk to them about stuff because they're a little bit under conviction. And and what's happening a lot of times is they're searing their conscience, is how Paul described it. They're, they're making their their consciences have pinged them, saying, "Stop being so this way." But they say, "Well, it's not that bad," and they're kind of justifying their sin. Those kind of people, if you get in their grill and up in their grill, if you start getting too pushy with them, they will flee. They'll get mad. They're really touchy. For those guys, you just need to be inclusive. Just need to chill out, love them, but be who you are with them, right? And then you've got the fourth group. These are the these Occasionally you run into these. These are the so-called disciples who are open and proud and rebellious about their sins. This group, we'll read a text about them in a minute. This group, you need to just, you need to slap them up. <laughs> you need to just exclude them. And actually Paul says, let's just turn them over to Satan. You'll see this in a minute. It's like, whoa, baby. <laughs> and then the last group is the mature believer who's struggling well. And with this group, Yeah, they're they're obviously insiders, but they're again those kind of people that are wise, that love, reprove. And and if you're a mature believer in Christ, you're gonna be like this. You're gonna be telling people, please help me see where I'm missing it. Please show me if you think I'm messing something up. And when people bust you, you open your heart to it and you receive it. That's the mature believer. Okay, uh, but let me give you a practical example of how to sort this out. I'm gonna give you a text from Matthew chapter seven, and I'm gonna tell you a story that is one of the most supernatural events that ever happened to me personally. And it, it, it's a story about this guy named Harry. That's not his real name, but it's a guy named Harry who I went to Bible school with. Before I tell you the story, uh, this, let me read you this text from Matthew chapter seven. Jesus is talking, and he said, Do not judge. So that you will not be judged, okay? For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by the standard of your measure, it will be measured to you. So watch out, he's saying. Why, he goes on do you, look at the speck or the splinter that is in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the fricking log that is in your own <laughs> eye, right? And you see the splinter, but I mean, there's a, there's a huge log in your own stinking eye, right? He says, or how can you say to your brother, let me take that splinter out of your eye? You wouldn't see clearly because there's a log in your eye. All you do is pull his eye out. Right? So, so Jesus is basically saying, first he goes on, cast the log out, and then you'll see clearly. So you get the log out of your own eye so you can see the, clearly to pull the splinter out of your brother's eye. Now when I used to read this, my take on it was always, and when I heard it taught, the take was always this idea. You know, if you see somebody that's got problems, I mean, be honest, you got bigger ones. I mean, when you get all the logs out of your own eye, then let's talk about you helping somebody with splinters. Just don't judge. I mean, that was always my take on it. That was always the take I heard talked about. Well, (laughs) then I had this thing happen with Harry. Harry, uh, I never knew him. He was a little bit older than we were. Gail and I were young. We were going to a Bible school here in Tulsa. And on our way down here, we stopped in St. Louis. Gail's from St. Louis. And somebody heard we were in St. Louis. And this guy, Harry, called and got a hold of us. It's in the day of land phones, you know. So, anyway, so uh, he got a hold of us. And, and I'm talking to Harry on the phone. And, and he said, hey, could I get a ride with you to Bible school? Because I'm going this fall too. Would you mind giving me a ride? I said, Sure. We have room. We had a little stationery, station wagon, stationary station wagon. And, uh, and, he's, and I said, sure. He said, well, would you mind? He said, do you have a hitch or something? I, I just got a, a little U-Haul, you know, that I'd like to put on the back of the car. And I said, okay, you know, all right, sure. So I'm imagining in my mind this little U-Haul thing. <laughs> I go over to his house and this huge, longest U-Haul you can get with double axles are sitting in front of his house and i'm pulling up i looked at that thing it was bigger than the car and so i put it on and when i got it on the back it was kind of an older station right the car went like this so i said okay so we got in the car hi you know harry was really nice really a nice guy but you know he we, we got it he didn't say anything about oh i'm sorry that's so big i mean just you know just kind of presuming he lived at home which at 30 years of age should have given me a signal that he doesn't have many cues about what's appropriate. And so we took off down the road, and as we're heading down toward uh, Tulsa, we got about, oh, I don't know, 100 miles, 120 miles. And uh, all of a sudden, pow, one of the back tires on my station wagon blew out. We were right next, thankfully, right next to a uh, uh, you know get off the highway thing ramp so i got off and pulled and there was a gas station right there pulled in with my flat tire the guy looked at it and he said that's going to be 60 dollars." now back in 78 60 was a lot of money when you only had 370 dollars with you that's all we had we had to get jobs to have anymore so we went down with our wad of cash <laughs> $370, something like that. And so we got down there, he said, $60. And I said, well, why did it happen? Was the tire worn or something? He said, and then he, you know, here's Harry standing next to me as this is happening. And he goes, no, this that trailer. <laughs> now, if it were me, and I would guess 90% of you, you would say, "Ad, let me take care of that. I am sorry, right? But Harry just sat there smiling. Never offered a penny, I doled out the $60. He never offered us a penny for gas. Never offered. He did say thanks. And after we got down to Tulsa and helped him unload all this stuff, and we were in the same apartment complex, we found out, you know, that Harry didn't like to spend money, so he didn't have a phone. Edwin had a phone. So Harry would come over and use my phone every time he needed a phone. Or when he needed a ride, he'd come and ask me for a ride. Now, I was brought up in a family that was very giving. So for about the first year, I really didn't care. I mean, I thought it was curiously odd. But after about a year, it became curiously disruptive. And a little longer, about 18 months, I wanted to kill him. (laughs) He would come over to our house, and you know, he had that knock. And it usually was around dinner time. And he kept coming every time, and every time it came time for break, you know, he would, he would ride with us up to St. Louis to go see his family and ask me to take him to his house, which was another half hour away. And then he would never offer anything for gas. Now, I never asked him, but he never offered. And, and uh, <laughs> so it got to the point where, where, where his kind of, or, or in the hot summer, how I many you know how hot it gets in Tulsa? You know, he wouldn't turn his air conditioner on. It cost too much money. So he'd put a fan on, and then when he got too hot, he'd come over to my apartment, and sit in my air conditioner, and add his body heat to my bill. <laughs> See, my I was de- I was devolving. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I was starting to go. I mean, I got to the point where I couldn't look at him. And when his little knock on the door came, it wasn't a knock. It was like knives. <laughs> <laughs> And I remember telling Gail when he came to the door, I started going into the room, into my room. See, yeah, though, the and, and I said, honey, and she said, What is wrong with you? Harry's wonderful. I said, Harry's wonderful, he's a nice guy, but he's a chintz. Y'all you know what a chintz is? A cheapskate. He's a cheapskate. And see, if there's anything, you know, you know how everybody has the kind of people they can't stand? I do not like people who are cheap. It just it just makes me mad if they're being cheap with people. And so, I, and so I go, okay, uh, I, the problem was he was no longer a precious brother whom Christ died who had a cheapskate problem. He, he was a cheapskate who should probably go to hell if I were God. <laughs> right. I remember telling Gail, I looked at her and I said to her, you know, honey, I just want to punch him. <laughs> I've never been a violent man. And she said, oh. she just went, oh. <laughs> and, and she said, You better pray. And I remember thinking, I don't want to pray. I don't want to pray. <laughs> started manifesting these demons, you know. I don't pray. <laughs> so I said, Okay. So I started praying about it. About five, four, three or four, five days later, I'm driving down the Broken Air Expressway going off a memorial exit as I'm exiting Memorial about halfway down the ramp. And I kid you not, I had, the best way I can describe it is just this open vision. I mean, I'm, my eyes are wide open. I'm totally aware I'm driving. I'm not compromised in my driving, but I'm seeing something at the very same time. And the best way I can describe it is you remember the R2-D2 uh, um, little vision he had of Princess Leah? Do you remember the movie? And and right out of his right out of R two D two Spirit Man <laughs> is this projection of Princess Leia. Well, that's what was going on. Somehow it was like out. Of, it wasn't quite that far, but out of my Spirit Man came Harry. And when he came out, he's right there in front of me. And and I'm driving, but I'm I, you know I'm we're actually at the stoplight, and I see Harry right in front of me, right here. And and there's this thing in his eye. It's like a it wasn't a pen, but it was like this thing in his eye. So there's Harry with this thing in his eye. And I'm looking at it and I reach up inside myself to pull the thing out of his eye. But when I reach up to pull it out, instead of pulling it out, an exact duplicate of what was in his eye appeared in my hand. Bing! And in this little moment, I took the thing that was a duplicate and I brought it to my eye like this. And I heard who I believe was the Holy Spirit said to me, you're making his splinter, and as, here's how it happened. I reached up, you're making his splinter, ding, a log. You're making his splinter a log. And here's what I understood. That, that here was Harry with a splinter problem. A precious brother in Christ for whom Christ had died, who had a splinter in his eye. Now, he had a number of them, he had a little, little kind of porcupine eyes. But, um, <laughs> but, but here's the splinter in his eye. But I had so focused on it that he no longer was a precious brother with a problem, he was a problem brother. And I felt the Lord say, if you'll cast the log out of your eye. In other words, if you forget about just focusing on what's wrong with him. And see him as a precious brother for whom Christ died, who has value to you and that you need. You'll be able to see clearly enough to pull the splinter out of his eye. But if it's in your, if you're so focused on the splinter that it becomes a log, you are judging him. That judgment is seeing people's actions before you see people. It's seeing people's annoyances before you see the person and his value or her value before God. That if you can cast the log out of your eye, you'll be able to see clearly how to pull the, the, the splinter out of, out of out of that person's eye. Interestingly, immediately I sensed this release of joy in my heart. I thought, oh God, Harry is a great guy. He just has chintzy problems. He's not just a chintz. He's a brother who's chintzy. And I had I, and been avoiding him for weeks, right? And so I saw him a couple days later and I saw him coming toward me, he's on the other side of the auditorium in a class, he's coming toward me and before I would kind of catch it and walk the other way. But I looked at him and I started walking right at him smiling. I said, Harry, how you doing, man? And he he came up to me and he looked more concerned than he usually did. And he put his head down. I said, What's up? He said, and he pulls out a twenty dollar bill. I kid you not. And he puts it in my hand. And he said, Listen, he said the other night, he said I was just sitting and reading, and he said, I felt like the Holy Spirit said to me, you've been too cheap with Ed and Gail. You haven't carried any weight. You need to start paying for what you're doing. And he said, I just never saw it. He said, I am so sorry. He said, I just need to pay my way. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, thank you for the $20. <laughs> I didn't think that. I kind of thought that, but anyway. (laughs) But here's what I thought in reflection. I wonder how many people we've locked up from transformation because we judge them. What if our lives are a prayer? What if our attitudes either lock up God's grace or release God's grace into the lives of others? And what if by our pure judgment of people in the world that we don't agree with, we're literally locking the grace of God away from them? See, we're not supposed to just be inclusive. We've got to cast the log out so we love them and appreciate them. That's inclusiveness. But we are also called to pull out the splinters out of their eyes. But they go together. They go together. You know, interestingly... (laughs) Jesus, we don't have time to talk about it. What Jesus says in, uh, in about judgment, he talks about how the Father in John 5 had given judgment to him. And then in John 12, Jesus said, I don't want to judge either. I've put judgment in my word. So it's almost like judgment's the hot potato. Here you do it. Here you do it. Jesus I didn't come to judge the world, but here's the point. He said, My word is the judge. He's sort of, what God is doing is he's saying judgment exists. He's obviously the author of judgment. He is a judge. But he isn't a judge in heart. The judgment's out there. The words have been stated. And you and I need to pay attention to the scriptures because at one day we will answer not by how we feel or by what we think, but by what the scripture has said. That's why we ought to freak out just a little bit when we read the scripture. And when we hear it preached, there ought to be a trembling in our heart at God's Word. Because it isn't just man's Word. It's God's Word, right? But, but, but we as believers, we have to understand that, that we don't judge people, but when we embrace the Word in our lives, and our lives become, as Paul said, living letters, that when we hear Scripture preached, and we let those words affect us and transform us, all of a sudden, we become the Word made flesh, And we become a part of the judgment precisely because the word is being projected in our lifestyle, not because we're using words necessarily other than to explain who we are, but our actual lives are a word that somehow it busts people. This is what happened with Cain and Abel. All Abel was doing was letting God's call affect him. And all he was doing was doing. He was acting in obedience to God and his life so judged Cain that Cain killed him. See, your life screams at people. James actually refers to this, and John does rather, and says, this is why, don't be surprised if people in the world hate you. Because your very life becomes the word that judges them. That's why when, you know, I get around <laughs> Pastor Brent, and dude, if you ever get a chance to hang with that guy, he is, the most, he is one of the most authentic, legitimate, kind people in the world. He just, I, I love that guy. He, you know, when I'm with him, even when I get a little sharp and a little, because I'm, you know, not as nice as he is, and and even when I get to, he doesn't bust me. He's just nice. But what happens is because of his life, his kindness busts my unkindness. His kindness judges me. I mean, every time I get around him, I I get nicer, <laughs> which is a little disorienting. <laughs> My wife, Gail, she is one of the most amazing listeners. And she's interested and she leans into people. And when I watch her deal with people or watch her even deal with me, I get busted because I don't like to listen. I think I'm omniscient. You don't have to tell me. I'll just tell you what to think. And so I'm quick to talk and slow to listen. Naughty, naughty, naughty Edwin. But when I get around her, I get busted. Her life busts. See, we have to trust that on some level our very lives judge people. And so we can afford to bring them close to us. We can afford to love them. We do not have to be people. See, what most, or many, I shouldn't say most, many, many Christians think discipleship is is that pastors should stand out in pulpits and just point out people's sins and point out their wrong beliefs and you just shouldn't believe that. Oh. We want, to be, we want Pharisees to lead us. We want the Pharisees who say, now look here. Look what they're doing. Remember that story we read about the Sabbath when the disciples were walking and they're just not thinking and they're picking the heads of grain. It was not the, they shouldn't do that. You're not supposed to pick heads of grain on the Sabbath. They do but they weren't there. They were just talking and joking around. You know, Eli, you know, just eating popcorn, you know. And Jesus didn't do it. He knew better. And just, but they're doing it because they're hungry and they're stupid. The Pharisees are standing on the sidelines. They go, now see here. What they're doing is not lawful on the Sabbath. And Jesus' response was, Durr. you guys, really? Haven't you read where David did something like this because he was hungry. He just His hunger surpassed, his, his belly overtook his head. See, Jesus understood why people did things. He didn't necessarily say they were okay, but he didn't immediately jump on them because of what they did because he saw their heart. Pharisees don't see hearts. They just say, what the hell for you? I saw the hell for you. And Jesus said, because of your attitude of just seeing what people do instead of hearing their heart, he said, when you do make a disciple, he said, you make that person twice the child of hell that you are yourself. There's a lot of discipleship in the church that makes people more demonic than Christian. All right, I need to... Let me tell you the two caveats, okay, as I shut up here. The two caveats of people that you've got to be mean with, kind of mean with. One is the proud. This is a story in 1 Corinthians 5. It says it's actually reported to you that there's a sexual immorality among you, a kind that doesn't even exist among the pagans. This guy has his father's wife, his mother, mother mother-in-law, whoever. And you guys are proud. Wouldn't you rather be filled with grief and have put out your fellowship, the man who did this? Even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. And I have already passed judgment on the one who did this as if I were present. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, I'm with you in spirit. And the power of the Lord Jesus is present. Hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed. So in the end, his spirit will be saved. There's obviously judgment going on here. And it's ratcheted up. So what's going on? The difference here is that the person that's involved in this and the people surrounding him are boasting in the evil. You can't use this text to deal with all sins in all groups. You know, where the newcomer walks in the door and they don't tithe, so we deliver them over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh. <laughs> right? And, and this idea of delivering them over to Satan, if you read the context, is only just simply saying, put them outside of the community. Get them outside of community. Because when you're outside of community, you're in Satan's territory. And it's so interesting to me as a pastor to see how many people do that themselves to themselves. They put themselves in Satan's because they refuse to have community. The the struggling saint who's bound by addiction, you don't use a text like this. The person, I mean, he's bound or she's bound, you don't turn them over to Satan. Or the young disciple who's still learning the ropes, you don't use this verse. You don't turn them over to Satan as they're just because they don't know and they're trying to grow. The person you use this verse for is the boastfully disobedient. These are the people, I mean, if you're living with your girlfriend and you know in your heart that it's wrong and you're justifying it and you're sort of, you know, you know you're, 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 you're coming and you're basically boasting about it to people because you believe grace is so amazing that you can't possibly sin, that sin doesn't exist anymore because God's grace is so amazing. There are people who think this. Yes. That grace is so powerful, there is no such thing as sin. Well, you're an idiot. And we will bust you. And we will say, no, that is a sin. I am sorry. You can't stand here and boast about it. Now, if you come in here and you're living with your girlfriend or your boyfriend and you're trying to sort it out and you're thinking, I don't know quite what to do. I think it might be wrong. And we will accept you and love you and walk it through with you and talk about options and encourage you. I'm not going to point you out or show you off or, you know, in some way shame you. No, but we will urge you to move forward, right? The principle of boasting in sin is what's at stake here. And, and this is one of the reasons why we dig into the lives of those who are in leadership. Because we don't promote people who are living in sin. You can all come. I mean, all of us are living in sin on some level, right? Something stupid. But if you're not careful, you, if you promote people who are practicing sin unchecked, it can become a boast when they're in leadership. So we don't, boast, we don't promote people who are proud or greedy or prejudiced or mean or creepy or pharisaical we're, we're, you know, we, we don't do that we, we periodically run into people who have, have been marked for leadership they have gifts but as we dig into their lives we find out they're struggling in sin and so we'll, we'll love them and embrace them but we don't promote them right away we say, look, it, we commit to working with them and help them see change of, and so that they can serve in ministry because by the time they serve in ministry, if that sin is ongoing, we're basically boasting it. We can't do that. And then lastly, there's that disciple who is legitimately trying to grow and who is disposed to submission that's required for that process. And we run into a text like this. This is our last text, Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, He's your brother. He wants to be involved. He wants to be discipled. If he sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you've won your brother over. But if he has not listened to you, then take one or two others along so that every matter will be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now, this is the imagery I used to have of this verse. If somebody's doing something wrong, you go to him saying, say, you're doing something wrong. And if he doesn't listen to you, bring a couple other people that are just as ticked off as you are. And you tell them together, you're doing something wrong. And if he doesn't believe it, then you bring them in front of the whole church and we all go, what do we do? You're doing something wrong. And if he doesn't agree with that we throw them out and treat him as a yeah. tax collector. Pagan dog. Yeah, let's stay pure. <laughs> it's not at all what that text is saying. In fact, let's ask this question. How did Jesus treat the tax collectors? How did Jesus treat the pagans? He loved them. He embraced them. He welcomed them. He ate with them. But here's what he didn't do. He didn't expect anything from them. See, who this is talking to is the disciple who's saying, I want to grow. And we say, well, bro, if you want to grow, you've got to quit being so angry. I'm not angry. You really are. No, I'm not. I don't believe it. I said, listen, hey, Pete and Joe, come here. You know Jim over here, right? Yeah, you have an anger problem. I don't. I don't think I do. Hey, church, you, know, you, you love Jim. What, does he have an anger problem? Yeah, Jim, you got an anger problem. If he doesn't listen to the people who are supposed to influence him in the community in which he's called, then we stop expecting anything from him. Because our call to discipleship, our call to holiness, is a precious gift. It is a pearl. So when someone walks up to you and they say, "How come you guys, after being married for f- twenty five years, how come you're still in love?", you can show them. Well, well, here's the pearl. Your life is a word that judges them. And they say, "Why are you like that? What's going on?" And you pull out your pearl. Well, this is what we do. We walk in forgiveness. We walk in der- Why is your life blessed? Well, you know, let me show you this pearl. We 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 lived in generosity. We tithe. We bless people. We volunteer. We're engaged in the world. These are pearls. We're not supposed to cast our pearls before swine. We're not supposed to cast our pearls at people who are not interested in pearls. We're not supposed to cast our pearls at people who don't long to be changed. We're not supposed to whip people with truth. The truth we have is precious. Only Pharisees whip with truth. And they cause the truth to be demeaned and make people twice the child of hell even though they're using truth. Remember, the devil quoted the Bible to Jesus. The devil still quotes the Bible through preachers and people in the pews. Hmm? But what we do is when we invite people into our lives and they want us to help disciple them, we basically help them with pearls of grace. Let's stand together. What I'm saying to you this morning is that this inclusive, exclusive balance of ministry is not the work for the faint hearted or the little minded it's very difficult for narrow minded pharisaical people to do the work of ministry and uh, they're they're only too quick to see what people do and it is not the work for over merciful people who thinks it doesn't matter what a person does or believes this is the work for big-souled mature individuals who push past the grief that they see when someone's in sin. they absolutely inclusive, radically include them and pull them close and trust that their very lives will judge them. And they will wait until the right moment to confront them with holiness. It's a very different kind of way of living, but it is a way that will change the world. Lord, help us. Amen.